We I've been walking through uh, a series of Advent messages. Advent, the time of waiting, the time of arrival of the Messiah Jesus. And today is our third Sunday of Advent. Our focus this Sunday is going to be on the eternal King. We talked about the promised Messiah. Then we talked about the light of the world. This Sunday is the eternal King. I'm going to use for a focal passage just two quick verses, and they're going to be very familiar to you. Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Very familiar verses. Especially around Christmas time, we hear them all the time. Uh, But I'm going to jump around a lot then after that. And I'll I'll give references where I do. But what I want to talk about today is this eternal King who is coming, who we're expecting in the the time of of Christmas and, and Advent. And I wanted to talk a little bit about who this King is and what He is like. So... Let's start with Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. Just two verses. Hear the word of the Lord. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we come to You this morning and we thank You, Lord, for Your Word that teaches, Father, that divides truth from falsehood, that shows us where we need to to follow You, Father. And we thank You for this Word. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for the gift of Your Son to this world who came to give Himself for us. Father, I pray that these words, these words will touch hearts. I pray that You you will move hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, Amen. Now in this one passage, in just two verses, this great prophet Isaiah is announcing to us 700 years in advance that a king is coming. And not just any king. This king is the king. The king who will restore Israel. The king who will rescue. The king who who will reign undefeated. And the king who's going to bring peace and keep it. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? And it is. For many of us, kings seem like they belong somewhere else. Maybe either in ancient history or in fairy tales. No, kings sometimes don't seem very relatable to me. The main place we hear about modern kings is in tabloids, (laughs) unfortunately. But I want to spend a little time this morning talking about the great and eternal King Jesus. I want to talk about why He is different than other kings that we may think about. And why we should be excited at Isaiah's announcement. And even more excited that the announcement has been fulfilled, that has come true. I want to talk about Jesus, the good King. I want to talk about Jesus, the humble King. Jesus, the real King, or the true King. And Jesus, finally, the eternal King. I'm going to read you, to start talking about Jesus, the good King, I want to read you some famous text, but it's not Scripture. You'll recognize it. It's a little bit philosophy, a little bit politics. See if you can tell me what it is. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these 
our life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Anybody heard this before? Oh yeah. That's the Declaration of Independence. It's our, one of the founding, defining documents of our country. It's the Constitution defines how our country should work. But this Declaration of Independence established that our country should even exist at all. Right? Let's go on just a little bit more in the text and see what are, what are these founders, these writers thinking. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government. So these writers, these authors, they're laying a foundation and a rationale for the action that they're about to take to break with an existing government and to start a new one. And what is this existing government? What is it that they're going to break with? It's King George III, the King of England. The king that they are the subjects of. Most of the rest of the document goes on to accuse this king of at least 27 different accusations of neglect, exploitation, and just general injustice. Some of the charges were unfair taxes, failure to approve and enforce good laws, sending his army and even hiring foreign mercenaries to attack his own subjects. Now, we're, we're used to all the language, the flowery language at the beginning, the philosophy, right? But actually, the bulk of the text of this document is the accusation against the king. How he has failed to be a good king. So, yes, our country exists on the premise of a bad king. Right? Think about that and let that soak in for a moment. We Americans don't really have a high opinion of kings, do we? And so I, want, I wanted to highlight that because we all come from a context and we don't always realize that our context is the United States. And in the, in the United States, we don't think too much of kings. But we have a king that we should think much of. And I want, I want to make sure that we think about that. So these men go on when they set up the Constitution. And I want to affirm their wisdom in this. They did so in a way to split power between the competing parts of the government. And why? Because they recognized the fallen nature of people. They knew that while they might have one selfless ruler, and we did. We had George Washington. And he could have been king and he chose not to. Amazing. Remarkable. But they knew that a streak of one might not extend to two. And probably certainly wouldn't extend to 40-something. Right? And so they knew that that this kind of selfless leadership was not something they could count on. They built the Constitution as a, as a really a conflicting document to force, to force conflict. It's in our American DNA. We, what do we say? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. Right? We believe those words. We say there must be checks and balances in government. So we cannot allow any single person to gain too much power. We pledge our allegiance to a nation and a flag, not a man. Right? When we serve in government, we take an oath not to a person, but to a constitution. And we say we bow our knee to no man. Don't we? Do you realize that all of this goes directly against the idea of a king? And yet, we as Christians embrace a king. We have to separate these ideas. We have to think about this. 
So a king is one whose word is law. A king is one who is sovereign over his country and all of its people. He's a sovereign. He decides how to spend the country's wealth. In questions of justice, he decides who will live and die. He decides whether to pursue peace or war with another country. We know what America and our founders think about kings. What does God say? Well, when the people of Israel asked Samuel to help them get a king, what did God say? Samuel went and talked to God, and then this is what he relayed to the people. I'm going to shorten this a little bit. I have the text in front of me, but I'm going to pull out just a few highlights. He said, These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your fields. He will take the tenth of your grain. He will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys. And He will take the tenth of your flocks. And finally, you shall be His slaves. This was God's warning to Israel when they asked for a king. This is what you're asking for. So it turns out God doesn't really disagree about the hazards of kings, does He? What will this king do? He will take... Take and take some more. And finally, make the people slaves. So we're right to be skeptical of such power in the hand of a fallen mortal man. Even if he's reasonably wise and good, he won't be completely wise and good. But stop there for a moment. Take off your American glasses and consider, what if? What if there's a man who is not fallen? A man who always keeps his word, who is wise and who is just in every single decision. A man who has proven his loyalty all the way to death. Not not just the risk of death, not just the possibility or this courage to face potential death, but to death itself. What if such a man existed? Would he be a good king? You better believe it. Jesus is the good king. And what makes him good? Well, Isaiah directly in these two verses gives us some indication. In verse 6, he calls him two names that indicate he's good. He calls him Wonderful Counselor. First, the word wonderful. That's good, right? No, it's better than good. And Counselor, he will be wise. He will guide his people with counsel. He'll be a leader with ideas, not just merely the threat of power. This king is not just a strong arm, good with weapons. He's wise, and His wisdom is available to share. He is the wonderful counselor, but He's also the Prince of Peace. How about a king who has the word peace in his title? That's pretty good. Would you like to live in His kingdom, under His protection? A kingdom of peace is a kingdom that is allowed to prosper, allowed to celebrate the gifts of life given by God, allowed to create art and music, That's what a kingdom of peace can do. Allowed to enjoy work without the destruction of what has been done. Allowed to have holidays, festivals, and a culture that continues to become more developed and interesting. Peace is the condition that allows these things. This king is the prince of peace. He is a good king. In verse 7, Isaiah tells us that he will rule with justice and righteousness. Justice and peace go hand in hand. Neither lasts without the other. The king, This king will judge rightly. He will establish good laws and maintain order. Remember, 
that these colonists accused King George of failing to establish good laws, of holding back from making good laws. Not King Jesus. His laws will be good. In fact, they'll be perfect. And He'll maintain good order. He's going to rule with righteousness. Righteousness is nothing less than living in accordance with God's way. And this king will always choose right. His wisdom and his character will keep him always in rightness before God. And this is a blessing. To live under the authority of one who is righteous is a blessing. He is the good king. So the prophet Samuel warned about kings. What do they do? They take. Take and they take some more. But what does Jesus do? He gives. He gives. And He gives more. What does He give? He gives life. In, in the John's Gospel, Jesus said, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. He gives us peace. Again in John, He told His disciples before He went to the cross, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus gives peace. He gives freedom. And He said, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So He gives he gives peace. He gives freedom. And He gives finally Himself. Jesus told Nicodemus that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And we know that verse. It's very familiar. Part of the gift that He gives is Himself. At the Last Supper with His disciples, He took bread, and when He given thanks, He broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. Jesus is a giver. But there's one thing that Jesus takes. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He gives blessing. He takes sin. So consider this good King Jesus, who brings justice peace and wisdom, and who is generous in giving to the point of giving Him His very self. He's not a king like other kings who takes and takes. He's the good king who gives life and every other blessing. And how should we respond to such a king? Well, we need to let go of our skepticism, our American doubt about kings, because He's not a king like other kings. He's given Himself for you. Give yourself to Him. Trust Him because He's trustworthy. Honor Him because He's honorable. Worship Him. Next, Jesus is the humble King. Isaiah has two little little sections in his verses here that give us another clue about this King, that He's humble. Can you see them in those two verses? What is it, what's the clue that would say He's humble? I'm going to tell you that it's the first words. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. He could have come in glory and power, but He chose to come in human flesh. Some people talk about their favorite verse or their life verses. Do any of you have one that you think of? I'm sure many of you do. I kind of think that if Blackman Baptist, as a church, has a life verse, it must be Philippians 2. Well, there's several verses, but we're a church, so we can have a little bit more. In fact, we just recited them this morning over here at this table. I'm pretty sure we recited them last week in some context. They come up I don't know, probably three out of four Sundays. i, I got to think we do. But Paul writes, Have this mind among yourselves, 
which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Isaiah is echoing this. To us a child is born, a son is given. It didn't have to be that way, but that's how God chose to do it. So Jesus came to us in the form of a servant, in the form of a human like us. That is humility. He humbled Himself. We love this verse because it is, it is theology and it's exhortation all wrapped into one. Jesus was willing to humble Himself. From being God to becoming a common human. And to take it still further, He submitted even to humiliating death. At the Last Supper, Jesus had to rebuke James and John. They were arguing about who would get the greater honor in the kingdom. And He had to rebuke them because He told them that, no, 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 in Jesus' kingdom, the one who would be great must be the servant. And the greater honor goes to the ones who are the most humble, who are willing to serve for the glory of God and not for themselves. Why was He willing to do this? Why does it work this way in Jesus' kingdom? Human kings work hard on their honor and their power, their reputation and their legacy. But it isn't just kings, is it? Because there's no kings in this room. But I think there's people here, myself included, who care about their reputation and about their honor and how people view them. Right? Because all of us like this. We want our names to be known and remembered. We want credit. We want respect. We want people to defer to us. They want people to give, they, we want people to give us our way. Right? But what did Jesus say? He said to the Father, Not my will, but yours be done. He told His disciples before He went to the cross, This is humility. No longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Imagine a God King who stops calling His servants servants and calls them friends. Amazing. But we're not done. Because the the writer of the Hebrews tells us that not only will He call us friends, He's not even ashamed to call us brothers. This amazing God King is not not ashamed to call us brothers. So this humble King came from glory to this dirty world, from heaven, to take on our humble flesh, and then to die. And what was the result? The rest of Philippians? You probably almost know it by heart by now. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This, this is the exaltation that comes from humility. This is how it works in God's kingdom. The disciples that He calls friends and brothers... He condescended to call them friends and brothers, but what was their response? Do you remember that when Thomas recognized him after the resurrection, he didn't say, oh, hey, bud. No, he got on his knees and he said, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't demand honor. He gave honor. But what he got in response was worship, and rightfully so. So this humble king receives the highest of honor and even worship without demanding it, but only by being perfectly humble. Will you walk in this way? It is exactly what he calls us to do. Lower yourself and let God raise you. If you try to raise yourself, he will lower you. You won't win. You won't fool him by false humility either. You can't win by insisting on your own way and calling it service. We're good with words. He is not fooled by fancy language. He knows your heart. 
The path to true glory goes through true humility. That is what Jesus teaches us. And we have a great and humble King. Jesus is also the real King. By real, I mean true. In, in, the, in the Bible, God has given us several images to help us understand Him. He calls Himself Father. He calls Himself Husband sometimes. And He calls Himself King. We know that we are made in His image. And the Scriptures talk about God being pleased, angry, jealous, sometimes patient, sometimes out of patience. It talks about God planning, doing things, loving, hating. Yes, even hating is in Scripture. As harsh as that sounds. Judging, God judges. He rescues, He builds, He restores. And many other things that we humans can relate to doing. Right? We can relate to His emotions. We can relate to His actions. So it's easy for us to think, well, God is like us, but a little different. But when we think about the truth of Scripture, we know that we are made in His image, not the other way around. Right? He isn't a similar thing to us. We are sort of a similar thing to Him. But not perfectly and not completely. God isn't like me as a father. Though at my very, very best, I might be a pale imitation of Him. And it is like that with Jesus the King. He is the real King. He is the master copy. He is the model. The greatest kings of human history were only pale shadows of what He is. Solomon was the wisest man ever. But Jesus is the wonderful counselor. King Herod was great. And we, don't, we think about him as a villain in scriptural terms, right? In the worldly terms, he was a great king. He was cruel, but he was effective. He built things, and he's still remembered today. If you go to the Holy Land, you're almost certainly going to see things that he built. And they're magnificent. Um, the port city of Caesarea, the tomb of Abraham, the foundation of the temple itself. You can go and see these things that he did. Jesus? Well, let's see. He literally created the world. The stone that Herod used to build his buildings was made by Jesus. So who's a bigger builder? Yeah. David, the king that we celebrate in Scripture, and he had the heart of a shepherd. He had the heart of a warrior, a lover, a worshiper. His heart was like Jesus. But Jesus' heart wasn't like David's. It's much greater. David was brave and bold by human standards. But Jesus makes him look weak and shy. To the extent that David was faithful, Jesus is infinitely more faithful. As as much loyalty and passion and love as David had for God and people, and he had a lot, make no mistake, Jesus has infinitely more. So our founders and God agree, human kings are not to be trusted. But that's because they're flawed human versions of the true king, the real king, Jesus. And finally, Jesus is the eternal king. He's eternal. In our two verses of Isaiah, we see this. Isaiah calls Him mighty God. And this is interesting. For a prophet of the one true God of Israel to foretell a baby to be born who will become king. And and the word king doesn't show up in these two verses, does it? But what does? The government will be on his shoulders. Okay? That's the authority of a king. And he will be called 
Mighty God. This baby that's going to be born is going to be called Mighty God. This is a very strange thing for a prophecy of this one true God, 700 B.C. But here it is. Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. What better kind of king than one who rules as a father with perfect unconditional love for his subjects as if they were his own children? Teaching, correcting, guiding, nurturing, caring. Imagine a king who treats his subjects as if they were his children. And he's everlasting. He doesn't die. He's always and ever ready to encourage, to love, to help. He's always there to protect, to guide. This everlasting Father. Jesus is the eternal King. Isaiah did foretell it, but he didn't really know the whole story, did he? No, it came from the mouth of Jesus Himself. Before He was crucified, He was questioned by the high priest. And Caiaphas demanded that Jesus tell him whether He was the Messiah, the Son of God. Because they were expecting somebody or they were expecting false claims of it. And Jesus said, You have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Wow. That's straight from Jesus' mouth. As if He's meek and mild. He's the eternal King and He knew it. The writer of Hebrews tells us that this eternal King is also our eternal priest by the power of an indestructible life. This indestructible life is the eternal life of God Himself. So this good, this humble, and this real King is also eternal. He's good so we can trust Him. He's humble so we can approach Him. He's real. That He is the perfect, ideal King we can never worry about being let down. And He is eternal. He will never die or leave office or face defeat. He is the eternal King. I want to ask the musicians to come up and I have a few more thoughts as we close. We've looked at the description of this coming eternal King in this Advent season because we want to anticipate what is God, what is God going to do. We're looking at these two verses, just two verses in Isaiah, and we see a King who's good, humble, real, perfect, and He's eternal. And I want you to also consider just how gracious God is to us. So we had a king. God was king always and forever. When the Israelites asked Samuel for a king, they were rejecting God as king. Right? And that was part of the problem that God had with this request. Because He was their king and they were rejecting Him. And God understood exactly what they were doing. They were offended. Why Why did they reject God as their king? Because their faith was weak. That's why. They wanted a king they could see. Like the other nations around them. It didn't matter that their God King was already better. That He'd given them their very existence, their freedom, and then a land to call their own. They they forgot about that. They let that go. And they wanted one they could see. And the first one He gave them was a normal human king. Weak, faithless, sinful. And He died. But God promised David the second king that He would establish an eternal throne through him. How could this be? Well, the answer, as we know, the answer was Jesus, the God-man. In human terms, descended from David and keeping that promise that, that God made to David. But truly, by the miracle of incarnation that we are celebrating in this season, Jesus was also God Himself. And Jesus told His disciples, If you've seen Me, 
You've seen the Father. So God has given us what we wanted. A king we could see. God in flesh. And He didn't have to do it. He gave us an eternal brother king. And the wonder doesn't even end there. Because Paul tells us in Ephesians that God the Father raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And He put all things under His feet and gave Him His head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. Picture that in your mind. Jesus on the throne in the heavenly places, ruling over absolutely everything. It's magnificent. But He's not even done because He says in the very next chapter that He's raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It, it never stops. The generosity and the grace from a people who rejected God as King because we wanted a King we could see, so He gave it to us. Then He exalted this King that we can see into the heavenly places. And what did He do with us? He took us along for the ride. My goodness, what a King. So today we will be having a baptismal service. And Jesus has commanded us to do this. It represents the washing of our sins in repentance. It represents the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. It represents the death of our old life of sin and the beginning of our new life in Christ. And it's also the first act of obedience to our Lord and King. So being baptized is declaring to the world that you belong to this good King Jesus. For those of you who are being baptized today, think of the King whose kingdom you have been accepted into. Think of His mercy on you. Think of how you deserve only judgment, but instead you got new life. I saw the cake back there. Think of your name written in the book. Right? Ah, it's beautiful.